clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Good morning and thank you for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management Special Client Event. Today's event is the 21st in our series and our first event for the 2021 calendar year. Today's program will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and the founder, chairman, and CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management's president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller Capital Management. And as Tom said, welcome to the first in 2021 in our ongoing client uh, series that uh, is now uh, 21 in total. We're excited about uh, our uh, speaker today. Uh, he's a longtime friend of mine and uh, we've been working together since uh, way back in the mid 90s. As Tom said, we've got Larry Fink with us, the founder, chairman and CEO of BlackRock. A little bit on Larry's background and then we'll jump into it. Larry and seven partners founded BlackRock in 1988 and under his leadership, the firm has grown to one of the global leaders in uh, investment and technology, technology solutions for investors of all kinds. Uh, BlackRock uh, manages uh, coming up on $9 trillion in assets today, making it the largest investment management firm in the world. Uh, Larry personally has been named one of the world's greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. Uh, and this thing, uh, the next one I'm sure he's particularly proud of, given how hard he's worked for so many years. Barron's has named him one of the world's best CEOs for 14 consecutive years. Now, before I uh, welcome Larry here, let me just give a couple of quick statistics on BlackRock since its IPO uh, in uh, 1999, uh, which we were part of at uh, Merrill Lynch. 142 billion in assets in 1999 when we took it public. And as I said, closing on 9 trillion today, it went public at a stock price of $14 a share. We have some stories around that that Larry and I can share. Uh, the stock trades uh, in the $700 range today and has been north of that. That's approximately a 5,000% increase in the stock price. The market cap of the company went from around a billion dollars when we took it public to north of $100 billion today. It is quite frankly one of the greatest success stories of a business from scratch to where it is today of any kind uh, and maybe the number one in financial services ever. So with that, Larry, good morning and thank you for being here with us. Hello, Greg. Looks like we're close by right now. I could tell you're, you're in Westchester today. Yes, I am. We're actually, uh, as you know, uh, I think we're just 10 miles away. We actually could have done this live. We could have done it live. Uh, so, Larry, now we've done this uh, dozens of times, but uh, managed to keep it fresh in part because of all the different things that you keep doing at BlackRock. Um, but I would like to uh, uh, start uh, uh, farther back uh, because it's a story that people are, are frankly amazed by. You know, I just ran through the statistics and I know you, you put them aside and you just keep going. And one of the things I say to people about Larry Fink all the time is just how hard uh, you continue to work on behalf of the company and shareholders and how that's part of the secret to BlackRock's success. It's just you guys keep going forward and you keep uh, setting that tone and the leadership. But can we go back to the founding of BlackRock? Uh, Please record uh, your message. 1988, uh, the, the card table and the founders around the card table? Well, it was a, a group of uh, young people who 
had a belief that we could create a new company. Um, six of us came from First Boston, two from Lehman Brothers. We all came from the sell side. Um, I would say the foundation of BlackRock was from the ashes of my career at First Boston. Um, it, it was the mistakes we did at First Boston and a year and a half uh, earlier when we lost some money in a quarter and, and we did not have the analytics to understand what we were doing. Um, prior quarters, we had record earnings. Prior years, we had record earnings. We, we probably should have uh, been reprimanded by the amount of risk we were taking, but we made great profits then. And so the ashes of, of my career at, at First Boston became the, the, the foundation of BlackRock. We started the organization with the idea that risk management was going to be important, um, which was kind of unusual. No one talked about it. 25% of the uh, of the employees that started the organization came from technology, um, which was another unusual component of what we did. But I, I would say the most important thing about the eight founders, we all liked each other. Uh, and now 33 year, years later, we still like each other. We're still friends with every one of them. Um, uh, as, of to, as of February 1st, we'll only have uh, three people of the founders actively working at BlackRock, and we have one founder who's on the board of BlackRock, but the other four, um, uh, we remain very close. And I think that's something to be said about um, the founding team. We, we, all, we all worked very connectively. Uh, we all had a mission. We believed in each other. And I think that's a core foundation of our culture going forward today. Obviously, we don't have a founder culture today, uh, but I do believe culture is the ingredient that, that inspires. It is a culture that motivates, and it is a culture that we are focused on our clients. When, when I think back to some of our principles, when we started the firm 33 years ago, we have the same principles today, and it is always client-centric. The way you framed um, when you the way you framed how my outlook at work, um, that is the outlook for BlackRock. Um, one of the little things we never do, we never look at our competitors. I don't have any time to focus on any competitors. That's looking backwards. The entire time, even today, it is forward looking, focusing on the needs of our clients, trying to anticipate the needs of our client, trying to respond to that, trying to trying to stay in front of the changing societal needs. Um, at the same time, we were building a global footprinted organization. And on top of that now with a big trend, you know, most of our careers, globalization was the key economic foundation of, of, of our expansion. And then in the last number of years, deglobalization is a bigger issue. But what, how we are focused going forward is if you are going to be a true stakeholder and focusing on not only obviously your employees, your clients, but in the communities where you work, more importantly than ever, you have to earn your license to work. Um, and so, you know, we're working even more focused on trying to making sure that we are in Italy, we're Italian and Japan, we're Japanese and Mexico, we're Mexican and in America, we're America. And, and through that process, I think we, we stay connected, we stay relevant. We're, we try to be focused on how to improve uh, the well-being of, of our clients and the well-being uh, of the society where we work. And, and so, you know, I would, I would just conclude, Greg, we're still having fun. I mean, you know, um, 
we still enjoy the conversations with clients. We still enjoy the opportunity to help clients. And so some of that magic that started with eight person in a, in a room and, and, and uh, much of that magic still persists today. And that's one thing I'm very proud of. It's been amazing, uh, Larry, to, to watch it. Uh, and I, I tell people, because, you know, again, when you have a, a company where you have a 5,000% increase in a stock price, even over, uh, you know, over uh, 21 years uh, and $9 trillion in assets, I mean, everybody wants to know. And I, I emphasize a lot of the things that you just said, that, uh, that they love the business, they love the firm. There's nothing too small. And this, I, I'm, I'm repeating this in part because we're building a company at Rockefeller now, and we're on obviously at a much earlier stage, uh, you know, at a stage that you were at at one point with BlackRock. And there's nothing too small that uh, you won't focus on personally and the leadership team won't. You try to get everything right for the firm and the clients. You, you, you know, you really do bleed BlackRock uh, and its clients everywhere. Uh, and you, you know, you're there. I used to say to people, call Larry Fink when he's not traveling at 6.30 in the morning, he picks the phone up. Uh, and that's been true since I've known you in the mid-90s. Uh, as I said, we're having fun. We enjoy the conversation. We enjoy the, you know, that's the beauty of what we do. Uh, uh, being in finance, um, to stay relevant, you have to evolve with society. You have to move forward. And you have to anticipate. If you're not there anticipating the needs of clients, you're going to be less relevant. And and I think that has been um, our foundational principles from the very beginning, and it remains today. And Larry, if we talk about that, some of the things that uh, arguably, with hindsight, uh, seem you know more obvious. And at the time, you were pressing it on. You know, first of all, the, the Merrill deal in 05, which brought you a much broader set of equity capabilities along time, alongside the the fixed income uh, you know background that you all had had, and then uh, the Barclays business, and then today you know, the focus on ESG. Can you talk, maybe those are three things, Merrill Equity, Barclays Index, and uh, ESG Today. These are three major trends that you, you've captured successfully. And that's a big part of the reason why BlackRock is where it is today and competitors are, are, are not. Yeah, but once again, I don't think anything we did was that unique. We listened to our clients. Um, as you said, when, when we went public with 120 something billion dollars of assets, that was all fixed income. And um, I know, remember, I was on the road trip with you, so I know that. <laughs> yes. And most people did not understand fixed income. Um, that's why the IPO was such a dog, uh, but uh, it wasn't a dog. It was. Uh, it was. It, <laughs> it was. was it, it wasn't the most sought-after IPO. Let's start there. What, what, what's amazing <laughs> is where, where the company is today, and the fact is, it was a quieter uh, IPO, late '99, in a bubble time in, in equity markets, and 21 years later, uh, BlackRock is on everybody's lips, and it's a hundred-plus billion-dollar company. Amazing. But anyway, I'll, I'll back back to you on that. <laughs> it's so. Um, I think even the first hundred twenty-eight billion dollars was very hard, as you know. Starting a company is not easy, um, and it was the foundation of the firm was on risk management and, and fixed income and and mortgages. And I think that that was the foundation for us to think outwardly, uh, but we were gaining the confidence of our clients. Um, you know, our performance was strong across the fixed income portfolios. 
We then became public. Um, as you know, our IPO, we were four multiple points below the average asset management firm. And so we were priced because very few people understood institutional asset management at that time, especially a fixed income manager, because most of the public asset managers were equity oriented and mutual fund oriented. And during the dot-com boom, that's where everybody wanted to be. Um, unfortunately, some of the asset managers didn't understand math. When you have a lower volatility, you should trade at a higher PE. But that's another, we could all talk about the asset management industry back then, but uh, finally it caught on. And I think what was important, Greg, as I said, we went public at a four multiple point below the average of the asset management industry. We had the dot-com blow up. We started, we continued to grow uh, double digits at that time. And within three years of our IPO, four years of our IPO, we were then beginning to trade at a four multiple point premium. And through the success uh, of our growth, because of the beginnings and success we had with Aladdin, where we began to start offering our technology platform to our uh, to our clients, it was through our clients who were asking, Larry, why are you, why are you only in fixed income? And I had a foundational belief that there was going to be a separation between manufacturing and distribution. And I do believe that is becoming more and more the norm where a, a strong distribution platform is looking to be agnostic as to the asset manager and they're trying to offer many different asset managers. Um, and at the same time, uh, some of the large distribution houses that had um, that had manufacturing or an investment platform was starting to question what should they do. Originally, the first one who sold was Citigroup and they, at that time they sold to Leg Mason. Um, and uh, our conversations, as you know, began with Merrill Lynch and some other companies. And um, and the reason why we sought specifically Merrill Lynch Investment Management was it would it would launch a a very large differentiation for BlackRock in our future. As I said, we were predominantly still fixed income, um, some equities then, and through the Merrill Lynch Investment Management acquisition, it allowed us to be in equities worldwide but probably the most important thing was the strength and the foundation of its mutual fund platforms in asia and in europe um, and uh, they did a very good job of building the network in every country of europe and so with that acquisition we were able to then become more than just a fixed income manager we had a it, it gave us the footprint worldwide to expand it gave us equities to really, you know, be broader to our clients. Um, and, uh, and because we had our own technology platform, and this is really critical, we were able to integrate a firm that actually was larger than we were in terms of assets within 18 months. And the entire foundation organization, the new BlackRock, was on one technology platform, one risk management platform globally. And that's a, that was a big differentiation. Most firms, and still today, when firms do acquisitions, they generally keep those acquisitions separate and they create this boutique type of connection. Once again, by through my focus with our clients, 
we wanted to bring everything to our clients in a holistic way. And I never understood having these, these divisions, these boutiques within an organization. I always believe that if you're going to represent your clients, you need to represent your client in a holistic way across all asset categories. Then we have the financial crisis. And this is really important because the financial crisis, obviously, we all suffered. Obviously, firms were sold. Merrill Lynch was sold to Bank of America, the demise of Lehman Brothers, and you know many, many different organizations uh, changed. Um, and we were, a, we were able to use our risk management systems in helping the U.S. government and Bear Stearns and then subsequently AIG. And then we were hired by eight other governments worldwide because of our risk systems. And that gave us, that further our strength as an organization. Um, and through that strength, even in the financial crisis, we were then able to acquire BGI. And we went to contract in May, 2009. Uh, when the Dow Jones uh, industrial average was about 7,500. Um, so it was a big bounce from the bottom of February 2009. Uh, and the same concept where if you now go back to the press clippings of May 2009, I would say 90% of the commentaries by analysts, reporters, and certainly by our competitors, this is the dumbest acquisition ever we overpaid. Now, I want to remind everybody that we, we probably paid more than we, we wanted to pay, but, but it was still accretive because we were still trading at a four or five multiple point range over the average. The Merrill Lynch transaction, which I didn't mention too, was highly accretive because we were able to buy it at a lower PE than where we were trading. And the same thing with the uh, BGI acquisition. Now, the reason why all the clients, why, why the commentary was so negative, people said you cannot have passive and active. They're so separate and so differentiated, you can't do that. And my response to everybody was, why? Our clients use passive or index products. Our clients use active. And if we can provide our clients a holistic approach of what, how to use index products and how to use active products, in a holistic way, and you overlay that with risk management, you're going to be able to provide a uniqueness that no other firm in the world was able to do. Now, um, but no one believed that. So when we did the transaction, um, our stock basically stalled for three years. We fell literally five or six multiple points. Earnings were growing and growing and growing. Our operating income actually doubled over four years, and our stock was down 30 points. And, and then people woke up and yeah. said, maybe what we said is going to work. And then our stock started this big ascent. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is um, in most times when, when things heavily applauded a transaction, that may not be the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, Everything we have done, it was heavily um, – criticize actually um but but i do believe now you know this is now almost 10 plus years later since the uh, bgi transaction our assets went from 2.9 trillion to close to 9 trillion 
uh, over the last few years, we're growing organically over 5% and, uh, and growing net new revenues by 7%. Um, and I would say, Greg, what we are doing and what is we are winning more share wallet with our clients. So what, you know, we, and I think much of it has to do with our focus on the needs of our clients, anticipating trends. Um, and as you closed out the framing and then sustainability was something that I would say quite clearly BlackRock was late. We didn't see it as loudly as we should have, but through various different interactions over the course of 2018 um, and 17, it became very clear that we needed to be running very fast. And unlike some firms who were already in the sustainability niche, we took a very different approach than most firms. We said, if we're going to be in this niche, we have to have our own analytics and data. And so what we have aggressively done is not only talked about sustainability, but we're developing and have developed different analytical lenses to look at climate change and the physical impact of climate change by having a joint venture with Rhodium. So we have great imaging technology on, on the physical climate risk issues. Uh, and we can overlay that across where companies, uh, where the companies are, cities, towns. Uh, we just announced uh, uh, another transaction with another um, research firm related to sustainability and transition risk. And we're overlaying all that on our risk management systems. And so what we're doing is now taking all these issues and overlaying. And so what we believe sustainability will be in the future, sustainability will be one of the lenses, not unlike any other major risk lens that you look at in your portfolios. And, and we look at the, this as a, a major transition. And I, would, I said this um, uh, earlier this month, I see sustainability and its future, similar to what I felt was going on in the mortgage industry in in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was, you know, one of the early mortgage traders in Wall Street, and we created the first, you know, collateralized mortgage obligation, and and we created all these different instruments. I look at sustainability and the lens through sustainability, and how it is going to be as large as broad as what the mortgage asset back industry did in the in the in the early 80s to the overall capital markets. I think sustainability and it's and how we frame everything is going to be overlaid across all capital market instruments. Larry, one of the things uh, I, I wanted you uh, to, 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 to address all those, and it's, a, it's an incredible litany because having been, uh, been part of it in one way, shape or form and watched it along the way, they were gutsy calls, which is what you were saying. Like uh, on the Merrill deal, uh, Merrill Lynch took a 49% ownership stake in BlackRock. You still controlled it, which you insisted on. But you know, you got a lot of pressure for having a big firm as such a big owner uh, in a in an independent asset management firm. Um, but we did something different that even Harvard did a case study on. And this is a boldness of what the Merrill Lynch leadership did too, though. They had the trust in us because they gave up their all their rights to the yeah. independent board. Uh, and so they owned a 49% interest, but we needed to prove to everybody that we were independent. Yeah. That Merrill Lynch was gonna enjoy the, 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 the success of the organization through a 49% ownership, but they did not have control in the decision-making. They obviously had 
uh, blocking rights for a merger. They basically had dilution rights and all the other issues to, to, to keep their control of, or, or their equity ownership of 49%. But in terms of the operating res issues, they, have, they agreed to vote alongside the independent board of directors. And that was a very uh, large governance issue. And because of that, we could have gone to every one of the other major distribution houses and say, we are independent. And yeah. they may get some, and, and that, that was successful. And that was a very bold, I would say governance uh, uh, component of why it worked. No, no, no question on both sides. Uh, and uh, and I, I was one of those directors voting alongside the independent directors. But my point was gutsy there on your part. The, the Barclays deal extremely because people at the time said they're paying a fortune for this so they know what they're doing. Uh, and as you said, sometimes the market then waits three or four years to, to, to validate it. But you know, people look back now and they think it was a, it was a singular line, uh, and and the decisions you know they, they look obvious with hindsight. And uh, you know, in order to create the firm that you've created, you've stepped out in ways that many others would not have at the time. And that's that's how always with Aladdin and the and the uh, the risk systems underlying everything and and bringing it everything's BlackRock and. And the risk approach, this goes back to your Credit Suisse lessons, always applied the same in, in every one of these. Now, Larry, Greg, we would have, we would have, I mean, that 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 was more than just a, um, a gutsy, um, that was more than a gutsy move because I was testing my management team and myself. I mean, I could look back and say, wow, because we, we just finished integrating Merrill Lynch Investment Management. We have now a financial crisis that, shook the foundation of every financial firm. And here we are having an opportunity to do even a bigger acquisition. And I would have said clearly my management team, my leaders were very tired. Um, and this was a, that was the hardest part of the decision. We had, none of us questioned the merits of the transaction. The question is, did we have the fortitude and the drive and the energy to make it work? And I can look back, and, and that gets back to the strength of a leadership team and a management team. And the and 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 that was the main reason why it worked. Um, the the entire organization was pressed, but they came through. I mean, to integrate Malim, Malim was had you know over a hundred different operating excuse me BGI had had, had over a hundred different operating systems and integrating a hundred operating systems into one um, it, it, it took three plus years to integrate a BGI into a into a one operating system model um, but I could look back and say that was the biggest test of our leadership team in the history of BlackRock and it wasn't it wasn't whether we were going to be right or wrong on the assets or 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 high shares. It really was a test on the, the strength of the leaders because for those who've been involved in mergers, mergers are very hard. Um, the biggest problem with mergers is merging firms that are so dependent on human beings. and people have different opinions, different egos. you don't know who's telling you the truth and who's not. I mean it, it is a it, you know for those who have not done a merger, 
it is one of the hardest things any firm can do, uh, especially firms that are based on humans, not on a product or, or, or something like that. And, and so that, that to me, when I look back and think about all the tests we did in our 30 odd years of the firm, that was the biggest test. Boy, that's a great uh, lesson for every leadership team, including uh, ours at Rockefeller, in terms of the importance of uh, unified and, and uh, you know, culture. collaborative, yeah, culture, culture, collaborative leadership. We talk about it all the time. Uh, let me let me just say one last thing. I mean, we had to make some strong bets. Uh, we believed in in quantitative analytics that the even the that BGI had related to fixed income and equities. It was a strong foundational team. We believe that was some of the jewels of the organization that most people didn't talk about, and then it had iShares. So at the time. At the time we acquired iShares, it was about $340 odd billion in, in assets. And we strongly believe uh, in indexing, but we also believe the opportunities in fixed income, which was just beginning. And we, are, we strongly believe that more and more organizations worldwide are going to use index-like products to get active exposures, and that has proven out right. And so today, iShares is approximately two and a half trillion dollars. Um, and so, you know, it really has proven to be, uh, a, you know, a, a good decision. Wow, that's uh, the math on that is a, it's an eight bagger on, uh, on assets uh, in, uh, in a decade, uh, amazing. Um, Larry, um, if, we, if we go to today in the CEO letter that you write, which is, uh, by the way, eagerly awaited and it's become an event, uh, and, and exactly what he's going to, what is he going to say today? And, and you have been pushing hard on sustainability, on climate. And at the same time, no matter what you do, you've got somebody on the other side saying, uh, you know, and I got a question uh, here uh, along these lines saying, you know, great leadership on pressing companies to make the, the net zero carbon emissions commitment, but you're, you know, you still have investments, not BlackRock, but you have clients invested in, uh, you know, in, in fossil fuels and coal, sure. you know, and, and look, with nine, almost nine trillion in assets, it's not easy to thread. You and I have talked about this a lot, but for the group, talk about, you know, there's a lot of leadership uh, in a space and, and I, I get notes in advance. I'll, I'll, you know, we, we, the Rockefeller family actually has been out front for decades on sustainability. And as you know, they coined uh, impact investing uh, at uh, one of our sister uh, Rockefeller organizations, and and they're thrilled to see a lot of what you're pushing. But there's always the hey, but what about this? So can you talk a little bit about how you balance these competing forces as you you bring the incredible muscle that almost nine trillion dollars in assets allows you to bring to the whole debate? Well, I started these letters ten years ago, um, uh, and uh, generally when I wrote them, no one cared about them, which was fine. Uh, I wrote them to our, uh, on behalf of our investors. Let, let, let's be clear, 90% of a conversation about financial markets is about our markets going up or down. And when you, when you watch the CNBCs or the Bloombergs or reading any of the financial media, it is about ups and downs in the market, what's going on. A, a interviewer could say, what does this mean if, with the Federal Reserve or XYZ? And the reality is because two-thirds of the money that we manage is on behalf of retirees and pension funds. None of this matters. We have lost the narrative 
and financial services about the long term. And that was the foundation why I began writing these letters. And then once I fully understood what um, what and what does it mean to be an indexer? And we are, we became the largest index manager in the world. What does that mean? Well, you know, when you simplify it, it means we can never sell those shares. If a client wants to be in an index that happens to have X or Y or Z, we have to own X, Y or Z. But also importantly, when you own an index, that means you own a lot of bad companies, you own a lot of good companies. And because in indexation, you, ha you don't have the power to sell the assets. The only power you have to have a voice is in the voice of your vote on behalf of your investors. And so if you look across the 10 plus years I've been writing the letters, that has been the foundation about focusing on long-term, trying to have a dialogue with management teams and their board about the durability of their profits. Um, and, and to focus on how can these companies perform better over a long horizon, because that's, that's how we can build capitalism worldwide on the durability and success of companies. And around 2017, 16, I started focusing on stakeholder and stakeholder capitalism that great companies that have long-term durable profits are companies that are focusing on their, their clients, their employees, the communities where they work. And if you focus on those three stakeholders, your, 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 your large stakeholder, your investors will be the biggest beneficiary if you do that. And then it was, then I started focusing on sustainability um, starting in 2020 letter. Um, and all the commitments we made on that. And obviously this year's letter is about that too, but it's all enraptured around this or encaptured around this whole issue of long-termism and durable profitability. So, so Greg, to answer your question, first of all, let's step back on the context. None of this is our money. As a fiduciary, we have no choice but to do what our clients are asking us to do. We made a statement in 2020 that we will not invest in thermal coal. So if somebody wants to have a manager to invest in thermal coal, they're gonna to have to do it somewhere else. But, um, so what we have begun doing is providing choice to our clients. We have over, you know, we have over 120 different products where clients can get a different index, a more customization index, more personalized portfolio to help a client then navigate if they have desires or, or they want to exclude. Um, and I do believe this trend, as I called it in 2020, a tectonic shift in investing, that's accelerating. And it's accelerating very rapidly. The existential threat that COVID has on humanity's health has really uh, shown light on how climate change is an existential threat to the health of the earth. And that existential threat is, is now being 
seen more and more with more frequency of droughts and flooding, uh, very, very large storms and, and from hurricanes and, and tornadoes, much greater frequency, droughts that are unbelievable, bleaching of, uh, of coral reefs, fires in the tundra. We are seeing more and more evidence, and I'm not here to, to debate the science, whether humans did it or it's a tilt of the earth. I mean, I, but I happen to believe uh, uh, our actions have created this, but I'm not, I'm not here to debate that. Um, and so what I have stated that in that climate risk is investment risk, and I think we're starting to see that. And what I asked in 2021 is, is again asking boards and the management team to, to report under SASB and TCFD. I also asked every company to report how are you moving forward on a net carbon footprint company. Over 120 countries have already stated they're on that, you know, that that direction. Um, and so. What I believe is happening is we are seeing more and more clients asking BlackRock about how should they think about sustainability across their portfolio. We did a survey late last year that of $25 trillion of clients' money, and they're going to triple their sustainability investments according to this survey. And, and so to the naysayers who are commenting about we're the largest owner of of hydrocarbon companies, um, that is a that is a fact. But what we're moving fast towards the building out of sustainable portfolios, personalized portfolios, and Greg, I think that's going to be the biggest change in the next three years. So as I think about where the markets are going to be, we're going to see less and less companies who put money in an index are going to put money in a, in a standard S&P or a standard MSCI or Russell or FTSE. They're going to be looking for more customization of that liability. Larry, and, yeah, we're 100% with you on that. And by the way, just to be clear uh, to the, the questions here, or the questions you get all the time, as somebody who's watched it, I mean, if you can, the, the, the change from the you know 80s when when we grew, grew up and, and 90s to today in terms of the kind of leadership you're prodding companies to uh, exhibit uh, is you know writing these letters saying you need to go do these things uh, you know the different stakeholders in uh, in in a company's performance you know remember in the I, mean, I don't have to tell you but in the 80s it was about uh, shareholders, and that was if you if you talked about something away from shareholders, whether it was uh, employees, the environment, the world you operate in, uh, you know the the efficient market people tried to take you back to wait a minute, it's just share price. It's come so far, you deserve a huge amount of credit for using the pulpit you have to to help move it and continue to move it. Yeah, but I'm not using it for that reason. Uh, um... I, I'm just responding to our clients. Um, I don't think I'm doing that anything that unique. I'm looking, I'm willing to have a voice, but I really am. What I'm writing are, are, are the feelings, are the conversations that I've had with hundreds and hundreds of clients, the conversations I've had with regulators, the conversations I had with government officials, 
Um, I'm just putting it all together in a letter. I, I really don't think I'm doing anything unique. However, what I, I'm willing to have a voice, and I think that's what's very important. I, you know, I write in the letter about CEOs need to have courage and conviction, and I'm trying to exhibit that to have courage. I mean, do I appreciate all the snarky emails I get and hate mail I get? I mean, it's enormous how much, how much um, hate mail I get, um, and some really angry people who who believe in a different view. And, you know, this is the world we live in today. Uh, fortunately, um, I, as I continue to try to be a voice of our clients, uh, our clients uh, are, are, have encouraged us to have that voice. And the feedback that we have had from our clients worldwide has been, uh, been really strong. Um, and 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 I would just say for, for the naysayers, and I think Secretary John Kerry said this in a press conference yesterday. I truly believe we're at a precipice right now where finance and capital markets are going to move more swiftly to change the arc of global warming than any environmental groups conversations. Now it's through the environmental groups conversations that have given us an, uh, the information and informed us, but this is happening and it's happening very rapidly. And just the $366 billion that has moved into sustainable funds last year was a record amount and it's only going to accelerate. And the other issue that you're seeing, you're seeing a, a wider spread between the companies that are moving more swiftly towards stakeholder capitalism uh, than other companies. So you're seeing a broad PE spread between the high and low of each company in every industry. Um, and so, you know, uh, we, we, we're going to be criticized because we're creating efficient portfolios on behalf of our clients that have much higher ESG scores. But it may, but we will still have some fossil fuel companies in that portfolio. They may be the best in that industry. But what that means though, is we're gonna see more and more client preference moving into those companies. And that's what my letter is trying to say to the CEOs. You know, we are, you're gonna see more and more capital moving away from you if you're not moving forward. Um, and, and it's not a threat. It's, it's, it's a reality what we are seeing from the asset owners. We're the asset advisor. And we are, you know, we, we, we're, we're seeing more directiveness from our clients who are looking to move and navigate towards this space. Yeah, we're 100% with you. We, we call it actually, our, our ESG, team, ESG team calls it uh, improvers as opposed to leaders. So even if you're in a space that might not be particularly sustainable, you're moving in the right direction and you're getting better. And those companies will have greater value over time. Uh, and, and you need to focus on those uh, in addition to ESG leaders. Um, I just want to shift gears because there's so many things we can talk about. A number of questions coming across, and, and I know uh, uh, presidents and governors and, and uh, all of these people consult you on, uh, on policy and where it's going. So we've had obviously an incredibly accommodative Fed, maybe you know, arguably appropriately so during the pandemic. Uh, but the size of their balance sheet, enormous fiscal uh, stimulus, enormous. Where does this go, Larry, as the pandemic starts to um, uh, uh, come under control over the next three to six months, hopefully? Where are we going on monetary policy, fiscal policy? 
is it possible that inflation, even in the world of uh, technological improvement, is going to resurface? Just your thoughts around all of this. And I know uh, uh, there are people in the Biden administration who ask you this privately as well. Well, I would tell any administration at any government, number one through number 10, is getting herd immunity as fast as possible. We're not going to be able to broaden the economy until we have herd immunity. As we all know, in 2020, we've seen some industries doing fabulously well. Um, bank earnings, asset manager earnings, records, technology firms, record earnings, um, the Home Depots and and and, and uh, Whirlpool, record earnings. And yet you have other industries that are that are, you know, their future is being threatened. And we have any industry that's focusing on the aggregation of human beings basically flatlined, whether it's cultural or sporting, um, hospitality, lodging, all those industries are basically flatlined. Uh, people are questioning the viability of cities and how, you know, and now can we work from home and remotely more often than, go, you know, running into, uh, to, into offices. So all of this is being in question. So if we don't get herd immunity quickly, we're not going to broaden the economy. There's no question COVID and the, the steepness of the recession has created more inequalities at any time in our lifetimes. There, and the inequalities are not just between within countries. Inequalities now are growing dramatically between developed countries and developing countries. So that's something we're going to have to live with for some time. You know, at the same time, we've seen a, this whole process of deglobalization. So there are many, many, many macro trends that we're all facing. But in but beyond beyond herd immunity for the vaccination, and when we have herd immunity, you know, I hear I see I read some people say we're going to have herd immunity in the United States by August. Some some say by September. But if the current trend of the distribution of and 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 releasing of the vaccinations continues at this rate, it could be it's good, we're not going to have herd immunity mid next year, and that has a bit, very different outcome related to monetary policy and fiscal stimulus. So um, it's hard for me to be a a judge on where should monetary policy be out six months or eight months. I think what uh, Chairman Powell said yesterday is pretty appropriate. The economy is a little slower than it was because of the, the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we're all waiting to see you know, how successful the rollout of the vaccinations to get herd immunity. To me, that is going to be the most important and critical issue. Now, the question on inflation and the question on um, fiscal stimulus and monetary policy. The biggest issue we have as a country, and this has been true even before the before the pandemic, 40% of our government debt is financed externally. Our, the debt to GDP in Italy and Japan is much worse than the United States, but 90%, 95% of their debt is financed domestically. And they'll have a problem as their aging occurs and they go from savings to they go from savings to spending as they age. And, but in the United States, um, we have a bigger, a, a much larger issue. We, if we don't find growth, uh, the deficits of $30 trillion is going to catch up. And we, we, and we could see then higher interest rates that will destabilize the economy. Right now, the forward 10-year Treasury uh, is indicating the 10-year is going to go to 180. You know, right now it's below 1% again because of what's happening. But um, 
that is not a big issue in my mind over the long run. Uh, you know, right now, um, you know, so it, in my mind, it's it's the forecasting is a modest increase in inflation. But I think, Greg, that's going to be the biggest issue. Um, if we, if the Biden administration creates a huge infrastructure bill, which they're talking about, um, if we have herd immunity and we brought it out the economies and the hospitality and lodging and other industries are back, I actually think we're going to have labor shortages in uh, in this country. Uh, but that's that's not an issue today. That's an issue out in two or three or four years, probably three or four years. Um, and and then we 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 are going to have to reckon with these type of big issues, you know, how to deal with this the deficits. Um, Maybe inflation is good to bring down the value of the deficits um, as long as it's manageable inflation. Um, and, and so these are the, some of the big issues that we're going to have to to address. Um, and the, the Chinese-U.S. relationship, as much as there is a, this dialogue um, of negativity, uh, our trade deficit with China in 2020 was the largest ever. Um, and so a lot of it is politics. Um, and the big question for me, and this is one of the foundational issues of America post-World War II, I would say America's economic policy was, was always based on consumerism, offering the, to more people products at the cheapest prices. Deglobalization changes that. If, President Biden's uh, announcement about buying American, does that change the consumerism model? Does it mean jobs are more important than pricing? And we'll see. I would say on the, on, on, on the margin, it means probably we, we are now more focused on the jobs, high quality jobs than the value or the cost of goods. And so these are the incremental changes that I see that's going on. And I see this worldwide, but um, these are, but right now I'm not worried about inflation. I'm not worried about the extent of fiscal stimulus or monetary policy. I think we have to, we need to stabilize the economy through the vaccination and then allow the economy to broaden out to be more fulsome. And once we do that, then we can be addressing properly, you know, are we, are we building the seeds of a higher inflationary environment? Um, and we'll see. As always, I think spot on and the sequencing is is right. Um, uh, we could go on for hours, but I'm gonna uh, get uh, close to a wrap here with uh, with hopefully two final questions um, uh, that get uh, to the latter and then back to BlackRock. So um, uh, this came from uh, uh, Nick Diogan, who you know well, who's listening. Uh, uh, and Nick uh, wants to know what was most surprising uh, reaction to your CEO letter this year versus last year's. Um, and then I've got one final question on BlackRock and we'll wrap. Well, I was surprised how well Nick liked my letter. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in funds with you now. He's in the private sector. I got, I got you there, Nick. Uh, um, you know, I, I I go I write these letters with with with, <laughs> with a lot of uncertainty. Uh, this year, the uncertainty was larger than any year ever in terms of writing this letter. Um, I did not begin writing this letter until 
uh, post-election. And then, uh, you know, even a week ago, I was making changes to it. So um, I, I would just conclude in saying I'm pleased with the reception. I'm pleased with uh, um, the client reaction. Um, and I'm really pleased with the employee reaction. Excellent. Uh, uh, BlackRock, um, uh, I, I went through the statistics up front. <clears throat> it's 2021. Um, five years from now, uh, where will BlackRock be and what will change between now and then? Well, I, I hope very little change in terms of the organization uh, that, you know, we're client focused. Uh, um, we are serving our clients well and uh, in doing so we'll be a larger organization. Um, you know, I'm, I'm spending a great deal of time uh, in making sure that uh, that when the, all the founders are gone, that the firm does better without all of us. Um, and I'm not suggesting that uh, we're leaving anytime soon, but uh, we are, I'm very excited about the leadership of the firm and I'm spending a, a large percent of making sure that, you know, we have the best leadership team in any financial services company. Um, they are taking on more and more responsibilities. They're doing more and more things. Um, but, but Greg, I, you know, I, I don't, the other thing I, we, we don't do much planning other than focusing on leadership a lot and culture because, you know, in my mind, if we're leading, uh, a conversation with all our clients, um, we're going to be in, 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 good, in a good position with our clients in three months or six months or a year or two years. So to me, it's about executing at the moment, making sure we're doing our job, we're performing as we promised to our clients, performing, uh, 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 and that performance will then lead to strengthen our equity pricing so our, our shareholders are benefited. I mean, one of the big transitions in 2021 would people, you know, this is the first time ever as we enter 2021, I don't have any dominant investor anymore. I mean, you know, we started off in partnership with Blackstone, then we had PNC, then we had PNC and Merrill Lynch, then we had PNC, Merrill Lynch, and and Beach and and Barclays and then Maryland or Bank of America sold and then Barclays sold and now PNC sold, and I mean that is an incredible journey in itself. Going from always having a strong partner and at one time having uh, three strong partners to now we are a fully distributed common equity. Uh, across the board. So, you know, we're, we're entering 2021 very differently than we did since we went public. So 21, 21 years of having a strong partner, equity owner. And, and, and so I, I would hope to say that we continue to transform ourselves. We continue to be a voice of our clients and a voice of investors. And we continue to do that in five years from now, Greg will be fine. Well, Larry, uh, look, it's great to have you here. And, and as you know, I've said this, uh, uh, I've said this to you, but I've said this uh, to many others. Uh, there's been uh, a whole bunch of things that have happened uh, across my career as uh, an investment banker. Um, but uh, the affiliation with BlackRock, which started in the mid '90s when I was helping you all raise closed-end funds at Merrill Lynch as a vice president in investment banking in my early '30s. Uh, and BlackRock was uh, was owned by PNC 
right through the IPO where we priced it at 14, uh, four multiple points below where you thought it should be, but you came out 5,000% later and um, eight and a half trillion dollars in assets later. Uh, you know, I'm proud to see what BlackRock has become uh, and uh, and what you've done with it. It's amazing. Uh, and uh, we look forward to a a long prosperous uh, future with uh, between BlackRock and uh, Rockefeller Capital Management. I would say, Greg, thank you for your friendship all those years, uh, your sponsorship, and also thank you for helping me manage uh, uh, my personal estate. Great. That's great, Larry. Well, uh, I'm going to, as always, and I told Larry I would do this close uh, for uh, our clients and our colleagues with uh, uh, two quotations, um, and these are in uh, uh, in honor of Mr. Fink here. So Harry Truman said, uh, and you all may have heard this before, I like this one a lot, but he said, quote, people make history and not the other way around. In periods where there is no leadership, society stands still. Progress occurs when courageous, skillful leaders seize the opportunity to change things for the better. That's Larry Fink. And then John Quincy Adams said, quote, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. So Larry, those are uh, in your honor. You hit, uh, they could have been talking about you even though uh, one was uh, almost 200 years ago and uh, the other was uh, uh, 80 years ago. So thank you again for, uh, for being here. And thank you to our clients, colleagues, and friends of Rockefeller for uh, being uh, uh, part of the program today. Uh, good luck as we uh, move off and running in 2021 and we will see you all soon. Take care.